0: Dr. Steve Vargo is an optometrist and author who recently published the book, Prescribing Change, How to Make Connections, Influence Decisions, and Get Patients to Buy into Change. He wrote this book in order to give clinicians the tools to be more impactful with getting patients to make changes that improve their vision, health, and qualities of life. He discusses how to engage our patients through what he calls non-sales selling, in order to gain their trust, in order to influence their decision-making. And he makes an excellent case for the importance of using persuasion rather than just giving facts without any guidance. We also discuss the importance of establishing our brands in terms of our authority, capability, and results, and how we communicate that to our patients and the public at large. He teaches us why it is critical to be interested in aspects of our patients beyond their chief complaints, so we can identify pain points in their lives that may help us to better help them. Dr. Vargo graduated from the Illinois College of Optometry and got his MBA from the University of Phoenix. He practiced optometry for 15 years and now serves as an optometric practice management consultant for IDOC, an alliance of over 3,000 independent optometrists, and advises members in all areas of practice management and optometric office operations.
1: Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. A practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block.
0: Dr. Steve Vargo, thanks so much for being on the podcast.
2: Yes, thank you, Brad. It's great to be here. So, thank you for having me.
0: As an optometrist, part of what you you do is you sell people glasses. So there there is an element of salesmanship there, right? You need to sell a product. And as physicians, we we are not trained in sales, but in reality, sales is everywhere, and that's part of what you you talk about in your book. Uh, we have to sell ourselves so that. Patients will refer their family and friends and tell us, their are referring providers, how, what a great job we did. And we sometimes even have to sell patients on their diagnoses. Sometimes they have to come in, they're come in. They're, they're thinking they have one diagnosis and we have to tell them they have something else. Uh, they come in thinking their whole life they've had allergies and we have to convince them actually those symptoms that you're experiencing are not, in fact, allergies, you have no allergies. So we need to sell them on that. I mean, there's a, there, there's a little ethical debate, right? Should we just be providing them with information or should we be trying to persuade them? Um, and you know, there's a fair argument for both, but I think it is important to be able to, to not just flatly give your information and to really give it in a convincing way so that the patients will have a better outcome. So in optometry, you're obviously selling something. So it could put up a barrier between the clinician and the patient, right? Who sees this obvious cl- conflict of interest. So I think it's great that we can talk about that and to start, number one, how do you get past this? How, like, how do you go from salesman to clinician? How do you develop, develop that rapport when there is a little bit of a barrier there?
2: Yeah, and there is a barrier. I think optometrists might get a little bit more leverage because I think people walking into an optometry practice, per se, they almost expect to see that retail component where there's there's there are glasses, there are contact lenses being sold. Um, So there might be a little bit more leverage there from the typical optometrist, maybe versus some other medical uh, specialties or professions that sell products where sometimes the the ethics can get a little blurred on those things. In terms of selling, I absolutely agree with what you said. We're we're always selling. We need to be able to sell ourselves um, in a a lot of different ways. And I I like to break it down almost in the traditional form of selling, which is this exchange of goods and services for, uh, for money, which... Obviously, some of that exists in an optometry practice, I guess, in other fields as well, where you're actually selling something. But doctors do a lot and have to do a lot of what's called non-sales selling, which is really the ability to be more influential with the kind of things you're talking about. If somebody comes in and they have a, a certain idea of what they need, and maybe that's not correct, or they've been told they have a certain diagnosis, and it turns out that they, it's a different diagnosis, or they need certain care. Um, the ability to be influential with people is is incredibly important. And you said something in your question, should we just be providing information? And and I would emphatically say no. I, I'm really pushing back against the idea that healthcare professionals should just be providing information. And I think we lean too heavily on that, that we inform, we educate, and that's fine. It's obviously a very important part of clinical care. But my question, and it's back to that, would be what good does that do if patients don't act on it? You know, I like to call that TBU information. It's true, but useless if people don't act on it. The whole premise of me writing this book was to give people the skills and the tools to be able to not just give people information, but actually get patients to act on the information that their doctors give them.
0: So in order to do that, right, there has to be an element of trust. So how do what's the what are the fastest and most effective ways and those might be two different questions to start to gain trust with patients. And I think we start from a place of trust as as clinicians because they're they're coming to see us. Um so the question might even be how do you keep that trust. So mm-hmm. I Which of those do you think is the most appropriate to to answer?
2: Yeah, I I think trust is incredibly important in in your ability to do exactly what we're talking about, which is get people to move forward and and act on information. You know, there's three areas I really targeted in the book in terms of building trust, maybe more geared toward a a healthcare professional, and their authority, capabilities, and results. And just real briefly to go over the three, I think it's really important that as a healthcare professional, you're constantly building your authority which is part your brand, your perception in your local community. And as I work with other optometrists, I I tell them you don't have to be a nationally recognized expert in some area of eye care, but you should be working to be a rock star in your community. So whatever opportunities you have to get out there, if there's a local radio station, get on it. Call them up and say, can I be interviewed? Write articles for your local newspaper. Get out into the community. Build that authority so when people look at you, they automatically connect this level of expertise with... Secondly, you got to... Wait,
0: before you, before you move on to secondly, sure, sure. sorry. Um, I have to emphatically agree with that. And I think there's an issue of imposter syndrome there, right? Because you, you're, your optometry, optometry colleagues might be reluctant to discuss eye care because they're not the ones who wrote the textbook on it, right? My physician colleagues might be reluctant to go and speak on television because they didn't write the latest article on it, right? But we have to realize that we're still the experts, right? We might not be the national expert, right? But we're still experts. We Mm -hmm. have years of training. We have years of context. We have years of information and years of experience. And that is enough. It's enough it's enough. You are an expert. And so putting yourself out there as the expert in whatever it is you feel comfortable with, whatever your field of expertise is, you should not hesitate to put yourself out there just because you don't have your name on the textbook.
2: Yeah, that's a great term. And I love it. And I think that probably does hold a lot of people back from really taking that big step. At the same time, you're absolutely correct that, you know, as we, we talked about authority, but also getting into capabilities. You know, if you got through school, you passed your board, you became a doctor, you became a healthcare professional, you have an extremely high level of capabilities there. But I would actually push people to develop that even further. In optometry, for example, there's a lot of specific areas that you could go into and become almost a, a, a specialist or an expert on, on that particular area. Maybe it's dry eye. Maybe it's myopia control. To, so continue to develop your expertise in that area. There's always something new you could learn because you have to deliver on that too. If you're going to go out there saying, I am the expert in this area on dry eye therapy, keep developing those skills, that expertise there's always something you can do. You can learn. Stay on the the cutting edge with that. And lastly, results. I mean, I don't think anything speaks to trust better than the ability to deliver consistent results. So, if you are offering a, a certain product, a certain service, that you are treating patients with, and you're having a high level of success, the ability to communicate that back to other patients. Obviously, you're not violating HIPAA <laughs> rules here. No names given, but yeah, when you find that you're really getting a lot of success and getting positive results, build that into your communication, build that into your marketing. When you've got those three things, I think you've got something special going. That authority, you've got the expertise, the capabilities, and the ability to produce and demonstrate results. When people come to see you, there's a high level of trust with that particular healthcare professional.
0: So now that we've established authority and and thereby trust with the patient, you, you talk about developing influence next on their decision-making, right? So that's where this, the presentation skills or the sit, your scale skills come in. So where do I start if I'm trying to improve my presentation skills when, when I'm trying to influence their decision-making?
2: This is the part of the book I nerded out on the, the neuro anatomy side of things. And, and one of the uh, more interesting findings in my research, and I, I spent about two years doing research for this particular book, was I wanted to better understand how people made decisions. And, you know, there's a lot we don't know about the human brain. And there's uh, some conflicting evidence out there, but most experts agree, and a lot of studies point, will validate this, that our emotions are hugely impactful in the decisions that we make. In fact, we make most of our decisions more from an emotional side of the brain than a logical side of the brain. So... Um, one book that's, it was really interesting and it's more geared towards sales and marketing, but I applied a lot of it toward the book was, there's a book called Neural Marketing with, I might be getting the pronunciation wrong, Patrick Renoir, I think is his, his name is French. So I gave it a little French twist there, who really identified that part of the brain and what does it respond best to? So what I wanted to make sure I communicated in the book was when you're presenting something to a patient, right? How do you, present that in a way that sticks. And there's certain things like using visuals. We talk a lot, but when we talk and we use words, it's more abstract. We're actually connecting with the part of the brain that's the more logical side of the brain, which really, it, it can take the information we give it and interpret it. It just has a hard time making decisions without input from the emotional brain. So things like using more visual. In in fact, the optic nerve is literally connected to the the emotional side of the brain. It's why we can get more emotional when we see something versus when we hear about something. Using more contrast, where if you're gonna say to somebody, this is the best option for you, it's hard for the decision-making part of the brain to interpret that without something to contrast it with. We do that all the time in eye care when we say, which is better, one or two? And I use that example when I do Presentations, because you've probably been for an eye exam before. When the choice is easy, patients love it. Oh, that's choice one. No, that's choice two. Now, but when the choices start to look alike, people get very non-committal and indecisive. And that's what happens in sales. That's what happens, even non-sales selling. People have a hard time making a decision. Uh, storytelling, keeping the message simple, um, even the ability to be likable is incredibly important in your ability to make an effective. An influential presentation to a patient.
0: So back to the choice, I've, I've heard that referred to before as the paradox of choice, right? And we have that a lot in America where you go, and I think Trader Joe's, one of their ideas was they were trying to get rid of the paradox of choice. He's like, I'm gonna give you two different types of ranch. You're gonna choose between two different types of ranch dressing. You're not gonna choose between 10,000 types because then that experience is becomes a little more stressful than it needs to be when you're just choosing ranch dressing. So yeah the, the paradox of choice where you have too many choices. So it's it's our obligation that gets back to that authority and that the incongruity of information. So is it our job to just present the information or is it our job to kind of shepherd the patients in a, in a certain direction? There's so much incongruity in the information they have versus the information understanding and experience we have most of the time. I think that is our ethical obligation certainly some may disagree to 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 point them in um in, in a certain direction. Um so back to back to the uh the, the sales skills. So um in optometry we were talking before uh, in the pre-interview discussion about that there are some aspects in optometry where it's not just about the um you know it's not just about Glasses, right? There are many other aspects of eye care that you get into that the patient may not have even come in for, right? So, can you give us some examples of how you use those present presentation skills, the visuals, the emotion, the contrast, to convince a patient that maybe they need care in an area that they didn't think they needed care for?
2: Sure, yeah. You know, for me, and and we were talking about this before. Do patients come in to see an optometrist not needing glasses or, you know, sometimes they do, but one of the issues with optometry is that a lot of times people aren't aware of other services that exist, like sports vision, vision therapy, myopia control, these things that probably, I'm not overly familiar with with your particular area as, as an ENT, and you're probably not overly, so we would have a lot to learn from each other, but a lot of times that takes place in the typical optometry practice and we don't have a lot of time. I mean, we don't have, in in a particular eye exam, you've got, you know, 15, 20 minutes where, of doctor time where you've got to make things happen. So, you know, there's five key areas for me that I, uh, I really broke down in the book. And I mean, the ability to to connect with somebody is highly contingent on your, initially for me, it all starts with getting very curious. I think we need to spend more time getting curious about people before we start rushing to a diagnosis. There's actually studies that show doctors interrupt people within second within like fifteen seconds of them talking, oftentimes preventing the patient from really explaining what brought them in we i could I can't speak for all professions, but as optometrists, I don't think we do a very good job of really eliciting people's deeper reasons and deeper pain points when it comes to their vision. And that's really what you need to connect with if you want something to happen, if you want something to change. Um, Involving people in their care. You you brought up a great point before. Should we be shepherds guiding people toward their care? Brad, there's certainly a time where physicians, uh, healthcare professionals need to be more directive with care. If you came in and you have a, a metallic foreign body in the center of your cornea, I need to be kind of directive in what we need to do to get that out. A lot of things aren't that vision threatening. Where we need to be more of the guide, and and a lot of studies show that people, patients, actually want a healthcare partner. They want a guide in their healthcare, not just someone to tell them what to do. So start out figuring out their why. Like Absolutely. why are they there? You yeah. might
0: identify other things in the process, but the priority is really identifying their why. And if you can address their why, they then appreciate that you're understanding their motives for being there and thereby you understand them. Now you have their trust and then you can kind of direct them in in other places where you see concerning things. But it sounds like what you're saying is the priority is figure out their why first and then go from there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know that what motivates most of us to take action on something, it's usually our own reasons, not someone else's. There's a whole, uh, it, it's too meaty to get into, but uh, area called motivational interviewing. I'd, if you're interested, there's a book called Motivational Interviewing in Healthcare, which was just fascinating. It's one of the books I read uh, doing research. And the premise is really for patients that are ambivalent or resistant toward care and push back maybe toward toward your ideas or just generally resistant is taking a step back and sort of reverse engineering that and trying to figure out what is their why. Just like you said, what is their reason? Getting more curious about what's going on with them, what are their motivations, and then working with that. And it's fascinating. When you understand these things, I do think when you apply them to clinical care, you're going to find much more success. I I think it's going to naturally make you more likable in front of your patients because all of a sudden they're looking at you like, oh, you're really looking out for me. But also I think it, it stimulates something in their minds, where it helps them see what's the goal, what's the vision. And all of a sudden they're more on board with working toward that because it's what's important to them. Too often doctors try to give their reasons wanting a patient to do something. And sometimes there's deeper reasons. They don't they don't stop smoking. They're, they're overweight and they don't change their eating habits. All kinds of problems that were not, you know that patients aren't changing. Doctors need to change the way they approach clinical care if they want to have more impact with getting patients to change. It's got to start with the doctor, though.
0: You know, it's interesting. A while ago, I interviewed Scott Dickers, who founded The Onion, on how to be funny in the doctor-patient relationship. And at the last, at the end of the interview, I said, "If you had your doctor sitting in front of you right now, what would you want to tell him or her about being funny?" And what he said was, "Don't be funny. I'm the funny one. Just laugh at my jokes." like just laughing at my jokes. And I thought that was an excellent example of the patient is the star of the show. Mm-hmm. Make sure the patient is started. Don't talk about yourself, right? Be, and you said, it, be curious, be curious, be curious about them. You want to be likable, be curious. They're going to like you if you're, if you're interested. So be yeah. interested in their story and be interested in their why. And then that'll, and that'll direct you. And that'll, that'll take them from there. And then, um, another interview, um, that just, uh, I just did with BJ Fogg, who's a behavioral psychologist who studies uh, how people develop habits and change their behaviors. You really need to start with what they want to do, not what you want them to do, mm-hmm. but what they want to do. So that you're saying you know, exactly the same thing in a different way, but ultimately they're the star of the show, not the doctor. Do You have to follow their lead on what they're motivated to do first. And once you get them headed in the direction, then you can kind of nudge them in one direction or another, yeah, unless they we, have a metallic foreign body in their eye. And then you got to you gotta get it out of
2: there. Yeah, you got to get that out. But I, yeah, no, I, I really think we need to challenge the way things have always been done. Because th- there's always been somewhat of an uneven power relationship in that doctor-patient relationship, right? The patient comes in, doctor asks a few questions, patient answers, and then the doctor tells them what to do What what based on what the doctor thinks that they should do. So- you know, that, that's more of a directive approach as opposed to taking a little bit more time to find out what's important to the patient. What are their goals, motives, desires? What are, what are their concerns? And we're all driven by two things, reward and aversion. You know, we're always looking for some kind of a reward. We want, we want to get some. These are our main motivators that drive action or aversion. We're trying to avoid a loss. So if you can, you got to dig a little deeper Um, in, in eye care, I tell people, if all you're finding out when the patient sits down in the chair is, are you here for new glasses? How old are the glasses? Do you wear contacts? Boom, let's move on with the exam. You found out nothing, you know, you don't know what, what they're, their struggles are with their vision. You don't know that they play softball on the weekend and their glasses bounce around on their face when they they run. And you don't know that they work on a computer all day and by three o'clock in the afternoon, they just want to peel their contacts out of the eye and their eyes are red and they're miserable. Find out more of the emotional reasons for people wanting to change. Cling to that, use that for the basis for, for getting them to do something different that benefits them.
0: So how do you get there? How do you get to know that they play softball on the weekends or they work in, in front of the computer. Like, h- how do you include that in your discussion?
2: Yeah. So back to the point where we don't have a lot of time. And I went into the book very sensitive to that because I didn't want to leave people thinking, oh, yeah, that sounds great. But we don't have like hour long psychology sessions with people to ask, you know, 50 questions. So I actually addressed that in the book. And, and one of the things that I encourage optometrists to stop asking is, are you having any problems with your vision? I practiced for 15 years and I, I know from my experience, it's just too easy to say no. Now, maybe there isn't a significant problem, but a lot of times people aren't telling you a problem because maybe they don't recognize it as a problem. Maybe they just think it's normal. Oh, doesn't everyone's eyes get dry and you know burning at the end of the day? Doesn't everyone's eyes itch this time of year? So a lot of times these things won't come up. So I say, you know, when the patient sits down, instead of the question, make it more of a, a, a subtle, a gentle command, I guess you'd call it. Uh, Brad, tell me about any problems you're having with your vision. Because I need you to pause for a second and think about that. Anything that's going on, I want you to say, well, since you asked, I've I've got this going on. We need to get that onto the table. Beyond that, it's a matter of kind of peeling back the layers, I call it. I I use the analogy of an onion. But once I understand better what the problem is, then I'll ask you to further assess and explain it. Tell me more about that. How is that affecting you at work? Um, How is that affecting you once you get home? And then I want to get down, peel back another layer and get down to what we talked about before, that desire for gain, fear of loss. If we were able to rectify this problem for you, what kind of an impact would that have on you at work? If we were able to take some steps now, because I know you said your grandfather had macular degeneration, if we were able to take some steps now to lower your odds of getting that when you get older, what would that mean for you? So now I'm all of a sudden getting them the patient to tell me in their own words their their desire for gain and their fear of loss in their own words. It's a game changer because I can now I can work from that in guiding them towards solutions that are more based on their reasons for wanting to change something or act on the information versus versus mine.
0: So when you find out that they play softball just from chatting with them, you know, maybe while you're washing your hands before the exam or something like that, you might present them with have you ever been concerned that your glasses might fall off as you're rounding the bases or you know something something like that so you're painting a picture for them you know you're using i guess it's not totally a visual but a visual and then you know there's a little bit of risk and and reward in there right They'll, it'll make softball a little easier and now they don't have to worry about their glasses breaking
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're more driven to solve internal frustrations as opposed to external problems, right? I mean, a lot of companies were able to, to make a lot of money off of that. I mean, getting from point A to point B is an external problem. And we had a solution for that. We had cabs, but not knowing when a cab is going to get there, standing out in the cold, that all those things, that was an internal frustration which Uber fixed. So, and you can go down the list of, of all those things, um, to your point, yeah, there it is possible, I should say, that somebody comes in, at least in the eye care world, and doesn't have any significant problems. So I'm not trying to manufacture a problem where it doesn't exist. But if you're not getting a lot of information, to your point, um, I think it's good to have a list of things that are common complaints. So you could have somebody that, let's just say, has an outdated technology when it comes to their progressive lens for seeing far and and distance and near and you look at it and say, wow, these are really, this is outdated technology. And maybe they're not telling you much about a problem, but that might be an opportunity because a lot of those patients in that will complain about peripheral distortion. So you might say, Brad, I notice you've got this older technology on your lenses here. A lot of my patients who wear this have a lot of distortion when they look off to the side. Do you have any problems with that? maybe you don't but there's a good chance you do now we, again we've got a problem to work with and then I, i'll have much more success and influence at you when i understand the the problems that you're having so you're starting from common pain points
0: so because you understand the pathology and you understand what's common you understand what pain points the patients might be experiencing and you can you you might even be able to rattle off two or three in order like you know, if a patient's coming in to see me and they have a stuffy nose, one of the questions that I also always ask them is, "Does this give you trouble sleeping?" Right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a common. They might not bring it up, but as soon as I ask it, they go, oh, "Yo, you know what? Yeah. yeah. Whenever I yeah. whenever I lie down to go to sleep, because actually that's normal for your nose to get more congested when you lie down. This dependent edema. So they will divulge that, and now suddenly we have something else that that really builds a case for possibly them them needing surgery. Yeah, not. I'm not trying to sell them surgery but i'm trying to identify if their problem is severe enough to warrant the risks and rigors of surgery so by knowing what those common pain points are being able to to draw them out because uh, that's part of where our expertise lies yeah. that's uh, and, and, that's great and it'll gain that trust right because now you understand them you know what yeah how did you know
2: yeah and uh, yeah no absolutely and yeah when the focus is on them and and in the end we're tying everything back to um, yeah, I like to use the phrase what this means to you. It it's interesting. They've done research on what the most persuasive words in the English language are. And they've done different studies and there, there's some variability in the list, but you'll see most frequently the number one most, most persuasive word in the English language is you. If I say you. So it gives you an opportunity at the end to to use the phrase what this means to you. Um what this means to you with this condition is when you go to sleep at night, right? Because that's what you're telling me the problem is. Well I'm connecting a lot better with you if I'm telling you what how this is going to benefit you instead of just telling you what I what I think is best for you based on my reasons.
0: So you're turning it around and you're saying this is what my understanding of what you told me is. Yep. yep. So you're paraphrasing it for them and so that you're using them as the frame of reference.
2: You're solving their problem. That's all yeah. it is. Whether we're talking about selling a computer or whether we're talking about selling somebody on uh, being compliant with their diabetic medication we're solving a problem I mean that's all that that's sale the most successful business people just solve problems we're just solving a, a maybe more health related problems at times
0: so we've gained their trust we've started to influence their decision making and we've identified their pain points so how do we get from providing all of this information to getting them to then act on them? on that information? Are there any more steps involved, anything else that we can do from just providing all of this to getting them to go home and do whatever it is we wanted them to do? Uh,
2: Well, there's a lot to be said for getting, you know, we talked about before about involving patients in their care, but there's a lot to be said for getting patients committed to their care as well. So I like the idea of pausing every once in a while throughout as you're going through this, as, as you're getting curious um, making sure that you peel back the layers, understanding what the more emotionally driven problems people are having, involving them in their care, applying those presentation skills that we talked about and, and earning their trust. But also along the way, I think there needs to be some accountability built in there well in, in there as well, and pausing every once in a while just to make sure that that person's on board. So especially if I'm trying, if I'm Trying to take you in a direction or trying to get you to change a behavior, a mindset. If, if I'm if I'm trying to sell you on the idea of a certain procedure, a service, a product, pausing every once in a while and say, how does this sound to you, Brad? Are you on board with what I'm saying? Are you good with moving forward with this? And I'm and you vocalizing back to me, yes, is very powerful. And there's a psychological play there that people wanna be consistent, right? It's called consistency, consistent with what they say they're going to do. And also gives the patient a chance to object, which is fine. If we're not on the same page, let me know and let's see if we can work through it. So if I'm going through this and you say, you know what, I I, I got a lot of reservations about that. How much is that gonna cost? I'm not quite sure yet. It's a chance for us to pause there and deal with the objection at hand. But if we're moving along smoothly, you're, you're on board and aligned with what I'm saying, then at the end, it's a lot easier to move forward with that next step. That, that big close at the end that salespeople have done is, is horrible. You know, we, we spend the whole time, or salespeople giving you all this information, and at the end, there's the, the big close where I just, you know, I, I hope I've done enough that you actually do what I want you to do, um, is not nearly as effective as what they call getting small commitments along the way.
0: It sounds like you're priming them. Yep. Like you're priming, you're priming them with a small yes, and then another small yes, yeah. and a slightly bigger yes, and a slightly bigger yes, and then they've said yes so many more, so many times already that it becomes unlikely that they're going to not say yes again.
2: It becomes unlikely, and like I said, I very much welcome the objection. If, yeah. And it gives, you, an yeah, it gives them an opportunity.
0: It gives them plenty and maybe of opportunities to yeah. turn the train in a different direction.
2: Yeah. And maybe and maybe the doctor, the healthcare professional needs to do that. If, if it's something you've got a, a strong objection to for whatever reason, um, maybe it's just a misunderstanding or a miscommunication. It gives you a chance to clear that up. Um, but also maybe it's an opportunity to kind of uh, realign on option B. And it's okay. Within eye care, it's, it's not a problem at all sometimes to say, Um, No, I I completely understand what you're saying. I'm I'm empathetic toward that. Let me tell you about another option we could go. But that's also an opportunity to reiterate desire for gain and fear of loss, right? Because it might involve, you know, option B is an option, but you were telling me that you have all these problems staring at a computer and you're getting all this glare. So if we could go with option B, but I just want to remind you, it's not going to solve that problem. So now an opportunity to kind of wrap back around and give them another opportunity to think about it and maybe they decide it's not that important to me, but maybe they decide like I saw a lot in my when I was practicing, you know what I, I think I am going to go with option A. It's just a little bit more money to spend, but I'm seeing the value. And in the end, what we're really trying to do is get people to understand the value.
0: I love it. you know I've, I've been waiting a long time to get someone on the show to talk about persuasion, and you know I think a lot of the elements that you're that you've brought up today are are persuasion. Right, and I think it's critical to what we do. There's certainly an ethical discussion to be had about that, but I, but I think you made an excellent argument at the beginning about why the onus is on us to not just provide the information, but but to to direct So I, I really appreciate that. But if if you could, and I know you've been doing this work for the last five years, where you've been consulting with optometrists, and this is this is what your book is about. But you were a practicing optometrist prior to that. And and some of what we do on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring is we have specialists come on the show and talk about what they think every physician should know about their field. And so I'd like to cover that in optometry. So could you just give us some pointers, some tips, some information about what you think physicians should know about the field of optometry that maybe sometimes we get wrong?
2: Yeah, so I think we probably do more than people think we do. And and I even get that from friends of mine or people I meet when I say, I you know, I, I, I'm an optometrist or I, I was a practicing optometrist. And they'll go, yeah, optometry. Which, which one's that one? That That's the one that, that you guys do the glasses, right? Yeah, we do the glasses, but we also do a lot more too. And if, if the question is what you know, what would physicians be interested in? There's a there's a lot of crossover actually between, and there's some confusion, optometry and ophthalmology. There is more of an optical framework for optometry. I mean, we do the glasses, we do the contacts, but we also treat a lot of eye disease, eye conditions, eye disorders. There's a specialized services that, that we provide. Ophthalmology is probably more surgical driven and obviously they treat eye disease as well. So there's some crossover there and, and, and most optometrists and ophthalmologists work it, pretty close in, in partnerships and referrals and things like that. But it's a really interesting profession. If you went back 20 or 30 years, it it probably was more focused solely on on the glasses and just the optical, but they've created a lot more opportunities for optometrists in terms of treating eye disease and therapeutics and and offering a a wider scope of care.
0: Where does an optician fall in there?
2: So a lot of opticians would be um, affiliated with optometrists, employed by optometrists or an eye care facility, They are more focused on the optical. So if you went to see your optometrist and the optometrist gave you a full comprehensive eye exam, uh, wrote a prescription for glasses, a diagnosis, any other issues, you've got dry eye, I'd like you to come back, some things I need to look at, your eye pressure's a little high, all the things that an eye doctor does. When they're done and you're going to get glasses, then they would most likely send you out to the optical. Where someone meet would meet you out there and help you pick out the glass, and a well-trained optician is really a key and critical part of a optometry practice, and they're the ones who really help with the the optics, what lenses to choose, frame adjustments, frame alignments, what tints to go with, what specific lenses to go with, and and can speak to that. In some cases, even better than the doctor. So we we highly value their services in our in our practice. So can you go over some of the common pathologies
0: that you'd like you like the physicians to be aware that you treat as an optometrist.
2: Sure. Yeah. So I mean I, I think the most common pathology we probably see are glaucoma, cataracts, macular degeneration, and diabetic retinopathy. So there's definitely going to be a uh you know crossover there too, even with with their physicians and internists, diabetes is a big one because that can create uh bleeding inside the eye, the blessed blood vessels can start to leak. And, and that's actually the number one cause of, of blindness. So, you know, when people come back and they haven't been to see their eye doctor in five, six, seven years and say, well, I wasn't having any trouble seeing, you know, we like to remind them that there's more going on than just your actual visual acuity. So there's other things we want to keep an eye on. And we just have to remember that the eye is the one part of the body that's it's kind of a window to what's going on because you can see blood vessels, you can see inside the eye. So, I mean, things like di- diabetes and hypertension and, and high cholesterol and, and other vascular diseases, um, a lot of them actually will show up in the eyes. And a lot of times your optometrist is the first one to, to identify those things and make sure that they get the appropriate care and and in with the appropriate doctor based on that condition.
0: Steve, this has really been a great conversation. Um, can you tell us a bit about the book and where we can find it and where
2: we can find you? Great. Yeah. It's a Prescribing Change. Uh, it's on Amazon, so you could search it on Amazon, or you could go to my personal website, which is Dr. Steve Vargo, D-R-S-T-E-V-E, V in Victor, A-R-G-O.com, and, and you'll find it there as well. And it's it was a lot of fun. It was two years of research and and a lot of work, putting uh, all that together. And and I was really happy with what came out of it, what I learned. And and I I went into it and I continue to be very much a student of the topic. I'm not a psychologist, but I embraced the idea and and enjoyed everything I learned and I continue to learn. And and it's become somewhat of my mission to be able to fill that gap between doctors having the knowledge and patients sitting there listening to what they're saying but try to close that gap between getting them to not just hear the information, but act on the information. That that was the premise of prescribing change, right? Something has to change or you're not really having a whole lot of impact as a, as a physician.
1: Yeah,
0: it's pointless if they have done nothing with the information you've provided.
2: Exactly, which happens all too often.
0: All the time. Well, Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been a lot of fun.
2: Thank you, Brad. Brad, I concur. This was a blast. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.